Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 344, Craig's Contradictory Christ, Part 2. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to give my critical evaluation of the incarnation theory that you heard from Dr. Craig last time. In my view, he doesn't come anywhere close to getting rid of all 15 of the apparent contradictions which seem to be implied by saying that someone is both divine and human. Out of those 15 pairs of qualities such that it seems that nothing could essentially have both, some of them were mental qualities that involve the mind, but some of them were not. The little theory that he's given us there, which you heard last time, most obviously deals with knowing all. And it's easy to get distracted by his colorful and multiple examples You have to be really careful about why he brought up hypnotism, depth psychology, or multiple personality disorder. His point is not that Christ suffers from multiple personality disorder. He's really just making this point that out of all the things that we know, some of these things that we really do know can be, for a time, inaccessible to us. And I think the easiest example of this, which we all experience daily and which we experience more and more the older we get, is just not being able to remember things. Someone says, hey, see that guy over there at the party? What's his name? Do you know his name? He's like, oh, I know his name, but I can't remember it. Right? And then two minutes later, you suddenly remember it. Okay, so you really did have a true and justified belief that that guy's name is Joe Schmo. But in the heat of the moment, you couldn't recall it. So you had knowledge that wasn't directly in your consciousness, and indeed, which couldn't be accessed without some effort. Okay, so he thinks we'll just take the divine omniscience, put most of it in an inaccessible, subconscious part of Christ's mind, and then what's left over for things that he's directly conscious of, he thinks will be knowledge like you and I have. Now, suppose that works for the pair, perfect in knowledge and limited in knowledge. How would that work for, say, necessary existence versus contingent existence? Bringing in subconscious part of the mind just doesn't help at all because those are not mental qualities. Or being uncreated as divine or being created as human To talk about different portions of the mind, the little tip of the iceberg that's sticking above the water and the bigger body of the iceberg that's under the water does nothing whatever to get rid of apparent contradictions like those. So it looks like he's spiked the ball really prematurely. He's very excited that he thinks he can give a Christology where Christ will have a normal human type of knowledge and maybe experience even while being truly omniscient. But does this move even work for the pair divine knowledge versus limited knowledge? As I'll explain in a minute, it seems to me that it does not work. But for the moment, let's keep asking which pairs of attributes he thinks he's addressed. What Craig says about Christ's subconscious mind would seem directed really only at the divine knowledge versus limited knowledge problem. 
but he seems to think that it's going to help with more than that. Some of these other divine attributes do involve mentality, right? So all powerful versus limited in power. We're talking about power to intentionally act, and that does involve motives and other mental states like choices. You might think that somehow this helps with not being able to believe something false versus being able to believe something false, although it's not clear to me how that would help. You might think it helps with being perfectly morally good versus being somewhat less than that. And he seems to think it helps with untemptability versus being temptable, and also the impossibility of character improvement versus the possibility of character improvement. So maybe something like six out of the 15 apparent contradictions have something to do with mental properties. And so conceivably making this distinction could help with those. Okay, but what about the other nine? Divinity implies aseity or self-existence. Humanity implies dependence. Well, nothing could be both. So then Christ can't be both. Divinity implies necessary existence. Humanity seems to imply contingent, that is, non-necessary existence. There's only one person here. He can't be both of those things. Eternal versus time-bound. Present everywhere versus being spatially limited. Uncreated versus created. Impeccable versus being peccable. Being essentially immortal, being such that one is not essentially immortal. Being provident over any other things there are versus being subject to God's providence, and then having authority over any other things there are versus being under God's authority. Sorry, but it still seems impossible that anyone should be both divine and human. And that's very generously granting that somehow he's solved the other six issues. I don't think he has. If this Neo-Apollinarian idea about the divine nature being the soul of Christ, together with this claim about Christ's subconsciousness, if that's the theory, then he's not even shooting high enough. He's not coming anywhere close to doing enough to deal with all 15 of these seeming impossibilities. But it's even a bigger failure than that, because the one pair that this talk about the subconscious mind is directed at is not satisfyingly solved by his suggestion. One problem is this, that the Christology at hand would make Jesus a liar. In Mark 13, 32, and in Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says that he doesn't know the day or the hour of his future return. In Dr. Craig's view, yes, he did know that. It's just that he knew it in his subconscious portion of his mind, where most of his divine knowledge is stored. He didn't know it in the easily accessible portion of his mind. Okay, but what Jesus said was that he didn't know it, full stop. And he fully well would have known that those listening to him would assume that when he says he doesn't know the day or hour without any qualification, that his meaning is that he doesn't know the day or hour in any way. And knowing that, this is the conclusion they would draw, and yet saying that he doesn't know the day or the hour, full stop, he would be thereby intentionally deceiving the people in front of him. Because supposedly, not only is he divine, but he knows that he's the divine son of God. So then he must know the day or the hour, even if it's buried deep in his consciousness somewhere where he can't get at it right now. But he just said he doesn't know it. 
but he does know it. This is what lying is. It's intentionally doing something to get others to believe something which you believe is false. I don't think we should be happy with a Christology that makes the Lord Jesus Christ a liar. He didn't say, I don't know this in my waking normal consciousness, which might leave it open, that he knows it in some other way. He just said he doesn't know it. But there's another problem, which is that it seems like the divine kind of knowledge should be different than other beings' knowledge, not only in its extent, but also in other ways. So suppose you have two different beings who know everything, but one of those beings only knows three things in their conscious mind, and every single other thing that they know is buried in their subconscious where they can't get at it except with maybe great effort or something. So consciously, this poor fellow knows only that babies are cute, that cheese is delicious, and that his mother's name is Margaret. And if you try to talk to him, he'll come off as severely mentally handicapped. But he really does know everything. Now contrast that with someone who knows everything, but in this case, they're directly aware of all of it. In no way is any of this knowledge hidden in the depths of their mind. Which one of those is superior with respect to knowledge? It seems obvious that the one who knows everything and has perfect uninhibited access to everything is better off than the one who knows everything and most of it is locked away in the subconscious portion of their mind and he can't get to it except with great effort. What I think this shows you is that if we're talking about the kind of knowledge a perfect being has, yes, it has to include knowing all truths and not believing any falsehoods, but it's got to include more than that. Accessibility, certainty, directness. If you have the greatest kind of knowledge anyone could have, it looks like it's going to involve more than just knowing all the truths and not believing any falsehoods. The unfortunate fellow in my thought experiment, who consciously knows only three things, surely does not have the divine kind of knowledge. Surely he's not equal to God in respect of knowledge. If that's right, and it's very plausible, then the sort of Christ Dr. Craig is suggesting would not have the divine sort of knowledge, and so would not be fully divine. Interestingly, a correspondent raised this very objection to Dr. Craig back in 2015, and I'll put a link to this written exchange on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Basically, the guy said, hey, doesn't the divine kind of knowledge have to be more than just any old kind of omniscience? It doesn't have to be more than just knowing everything in some way or another. And Craig just kind of stonewalls it. No, I don't think so. For some reason, he just doesn't get the bite of the objection here. So when we come to Dr. Craig with this basket full of apparent contradictions, and by the way, this is not a concern for outsiders, for people who don't believe the Bible, for people who aren't Christians. You don't have to be a Muslim or a cultist or a heretic to have these concerns. If you agree with the essential divine attributes we've been discussing, and if you agree with the essential human attributes we've been discussing, then it looks like you ought not believe in a God-man. You ought not believe in one person, as propounded by that council from the year 451, who has all the essential divine attributes and also all the essential human attributes. 
you bring this big bunch of problems to Dr. Craig, and what does he do? He makes the very, you know, kind of basic point that you can know things that you're not directly aware of, and then suggests that this will allow a human to have the divine sort of knowledge. That's not very much. Can he add anything more? When the Trinity's podcast returns, some things Dr. Craig says in his book chapter that you didn't hear in the presentation. In this segment, I want to talk about some of Dr. Craig's extra speculations on the topic of incarnation, which are in his very detailed book chapter, which he chose to leave out of the presentation that we heard last time. Now, Dr. Craig is, in my view, rightly hostile to canonic theories. These are theories named after Christ's self-emptying, as mentioned in Philippians 2 in the famous passage. So that he could become human, he divested himself or temporarily laid aside or decided not to use somehow certain divine attributes. So you're tweaking what is thought to be essential to divinity in order to make this God-man theory come out coherent. As he insightfully discusses, these theories can mean all sorts of different things, and oftentimes talk of the divine Christ emptying himself in order to become human is terminally unclear. Of course, as he also discusses, there are some very sophisticated recent versions of kenosis theory that do what is, logically speaking, required to get rid of some of those clashes between essential human and essential divine attributes. But they do it at the cost of revising a lot of traditional thinking about what it is to be divine. I also give Dr. Craig credit for not declaring the whole subject to be an impenetrable mystery, and then claiming that it's a good thing that it doesn't make sense. No, he's trying to find an incarnation doctrine which does seem coherent. And this is a commendable aim, even if he doesn't quite succeed. He also argues, plausibly, that this theory of his illuminates the traditional Catholic doctrine that Christ's human nature is not itself a person, but that it becomes, in a sense, personal because of its union with the divine nature. It's not a person on its own, because on its own, it is only a body with no soul. But when it unites to the divine nature, he tells us, then that body comes to have a soul. But it's not a person in addition to the divine nature. Rather, this human nature is personal because it contains the divine nature. That is its person or self. Okay, that makes sense. Of course, there's a glaring biblical problem here which is that some of the authors of the New Testament call Jesus a man. And what that means is that he is a male human person. But Dr. Craig, following Catholic traditions, holds that Jesus is, quote, fully human, but denies that he is a human person. Well, then he's not really fully human, even if he arguably has a human body and something which should count as a human soul, 
and even if he arguably has a sort of conscious experience that is roughly like ours. That seems like a huge cost to the theory, biblically speaking. Going back to a positive point, clearly a major motivation Dr. Craig has in this chapter is that he wants to avoid positing two persons in Christ, a divine person and a human person. Surely he is correct that any two-person Christology will terribly misfit New Testament teaching. And so, he's got a divine person, and there's just no room left over for a human one, contra the New Testament. In my view, the New Testament never so much as mentions this alleged divine person at all. No, not in Philippians 2. No, not in John 1. I'll put some relevant links on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. But Dr. Craig's theory, in having only a divine person, which somehow should count as human, but isn't a human person, that surely does avoid the pitfall of having two persons in Christ. The only person there is the eternal divine nature. But why exactly would this be a, quote, truly human or fully human person, rather than a divine person puppeteering a human type of body? Here, Dr. Craig says some things in the book chapter that we didn't hear in the presentation. Dr. Craig is discussing what Apollinaris himself meant. I don't want to get into that. I want to stick to Dr. Craig's views. But he writes that Apollinaris, quote, may have meant that the Logos contained perfect human personhood archetypically in his own nature. The result was that in assuming a hominid body, the Logos brought to Christ's animal nature just those properties that would serve to make it a complete human nature. Thus, the human nature of Christ was complete precisely in virtue of the union of his flesh with the Logos. As a result of the union, Christ did indeed possess a complete individual human nature comprised of body and soul, for the nature was made complete by the union of the flesh with the Logos, the archetype of humanity. Did you catch that? He just asserted by implication that the second person of the Trinity was always human. To have perfect human personhood archetypically, I'm not really sure what that adverb is doing in there, implies having perfect human personhood. So from eternity, the second person of the Trinity was human. This is confirmed by what he says in just a second, but let me read a little bit more. Such an interpretation of the Incarnation draws strong support from the doctrine of man as created in the image of God. Human beings do not bear God's image in virtue of their animal bodies, which they have in common with other members of the biosphere. Rather, in being persons, they uniquely reflect God's nature. God himself is personal, and inasmuch as we are persons, we resemble him. Thus, God already possesses the properties sufficient for human personhood even prior to the Incarnation, lacking only corporality. The Logos possessed in his pre-incarnate state all the properties necessary for being a human self. In assuming a hominid body, he brought to it all that was necessary for a complete human nature. For this reason, in Christ, the one self-conscious subject who is the Logos possessed divine and human natures that were both complete. End quote. A couple of comments here. For one thing, his interpretation of what it means for men and women to be made in God's image and likeness is contentious. But more importantly, 
even if he's right about that interpretation, it's a non sequitur to infer that because humans are like God, and so therefore God must be in some sense personal, that therefore God or the second person of the Trinity must have always been human. I just don't see how that Genesis text supports his Neo-Apollinarian Christology at all. But leaving those problems aside, okay, so the eternal divine person was always also human, although not a human person, and so did not become human at the time of his incarnation. Rather, at the time of incarnation in Mary, he only gained a complete human nature by gaining a body. And perhaps in other ways, at that time, he started to enter into sharing our condition. So in Dr. Craig's view, it's not a God in a bod Christology, where Christ is not a real human person. The Logos, or divine nature, was a person who is human, but not a human person, all along. Now, this seems like it's really off the reservation, as far as mainstream Christianity and the ecumenical creeds are concerned. I mean, How on earth can he say this? Isn't this eternal divine person supposed to become human at the point of incarnation? It seems to me that the ecumenical creeds that Dr. Craig wants to uphold straightforwardly imply that this divine person becomes human at the time of incarnation. Where? The Nicene Creed of 325 says about the Son that for us humans and for our salvation, he came down and became incarnate, becoming human suffered and rose up on the third day, etc. The second so-called ecumenical creed in 381 says, For us humans and for our salvation, he came down from the heavens and became incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, became human and was crucified on our behalf, etc. The third ecumenical council at Ephesus in 431 implies the same more than once. Here's one place. Rather do we claim that the word in an unspeakable, inconceivable manner, united to himself, hypostatically, flesh enlivened by a rational soul, and so became man, and was called son of man. That seems to clash with the Neo-Apollinarian theory, but anyway, again, it repeats that Jesus became human at the time of incarnation, which rules out that he always was. So it seems to me that whatever merits this theory has, it doesn't really qualify as being small-c Catholic, that is, as agreeing with the teachings of the so-called ecumenical councils, because it says that this one divine person was also always human. But let's go back to the question of how could Dr. Craig possibly think that this neo-Apollinarian theory addresses all of the problems involved in positing a divine and human Christ? One short passage in the book chapter, which he didn't include in the presentation you heard, seems crucial to this. So this is at the end of his discussion of the second element, which is the Neo-Apollinarian element, and he's gearing up to go into the third portion of his proposal, which has to do with divine properties somehow being subliminal or in Jesus' sub- or pre-conscious mind. Before he gets there, he writes this, the principal difficulty with our Christological proposal as described thus far is that it seems to founder on the human limitations evinced by Jesus of Nazareth according to the Gospel accounts. The Church has typically dealt with the problem of Christ's evident limitations by means of the device of reduplicative predication. That is to say, 
by predicating certain properties of the person of Christ with respect to one nature or the other. Thus, for example, Christ is said to be omniscient with respect to his divine nature, but limited in knowledge with respect to his human nature. To have been omnipotent with regard to his divine nature, but limited in power with regard to his human nature, and so on. Such a device seems to work well with respect to certain properties like omnipotence and necessity. It is easy to see how Christ could have limited strength and mortality relative to his humanity in virtue of his having an ordinary human body, although he is omnipotent and imperishable in his divine nature. End quote. Now, this passage is a real head-scratcher because analytic philosophers have long known that such talk is very ambiguous and can be understood in many ways. Some of us call it the old qua move, which is Latin for as, right? As human, Jesus is limited knowledge, as divine, or qua divine, Jesus has perfect knowledge. This can be interpreted in a whole bunch of different ways, which I can't go into, For that, you can see Dr. Timothy Paul's excellent book, In Defense of Conciliar Christology, a Philosophical Essay. Or for an easier but less complete discussion, you can see his short book called The Incarnation. The big question is, what is this with respect to talk doing? What does it mean? Some interpretations of this old qua move just clearly sweep the problem of contradictions under the verbal carpet and leave an obvious lump. So when one says that Christ is omniscient with respect to his divine nature, or concerning his divine nature, or as regards his divine nature, or if you say he's omniscient as divine, what that could mean is that because he has a divine nature, he's omniscient. And if you say that Christ qua human, or as human, is limited in knowledge, that would mean because he has a human nature, then he's limited in knowledge. But the problem is that these just straightforwardly imply that he's both unlimited knowledge and limited knowledge, which is a contradiction. Whatever property you have because you have a certain nature is a property that you have. And we're just back to the contradiction again. Now, I don't think that's what Dr. Craig means. It's not really clear what he means, but I'll make an educated guess. He thinks this works great for omnipotence and limited power. He thinks it works great for being necessary or contingent. He thinks it works great for mortality versus immortality. Really? How? But then he says this, but for other attributes, reduplicative predication, or in other words, the old qua move, especially on our proposed scheme, does not seem to work so well. How could Christ be omniscient and yet limited in knowledge if there is a single conscious subject in Christ? How could he be impeccable, incapable of sin, with respect to his divine nature, and yet peccable in his humanity? End quote. So the reason the qua move doesn't work with impeccability or with a pair of contrary attributes having to do with knowledge is that he's very clear that there's only one self here. There's only one thing that could be the subject of those properties. So then he must have been thinking before that with regards to necessity, mortality, and omnipotence, there would be different subjects for each of the qualities. So then one thing would be essentially immortal, and the other thing would not be essentially immortal. All I can guess is that he's thinking that the divine nature is essentially immortal and the human nature is not essentially immortal. The problem with that is that implies that both of them are living things. 
take the human nature, which is mortal, to be mortal is to lose one's life. You've just said that the human nature is alive. Anything that dies on the cross is a person. If you're saying that, strictly speaking, it was the human nature that died, you've just implied that the human nature is a human person, which is something he doesn't want to do. Take necessary existence and contingent existence. If he's saying that the human nature has contingent existence, but the divine nature has necessary existence, okay, that gets rid of the contradiction. But then, since only the divine nature is essential to Christ, it seems like that Christ himself just will be necessary and not contingent. But then it seems that he will lack a property which a human being, as human, must have. Again, take omnipotence versus having limited power. If his idea is that it's the divine nature which is omnipotent, okay, but omnipotence is a property that can only be had by a self. We're talking about power to intentionally act, which is something you have to be a self to do. So if he says the human nature has limited power, again, that's limited power to intentionally act, which requires that the human nature is a self. I don't think he wants to say that. So in sum, I just can't see how his proposal gets any help at all from the old qua move. A few other thoughts about this chapter. Sometimes things that Dr. Craig says makes it seem like he's imagining that the two consciousnesses he posits in Christ are each person's or selves. For instance, sometimes he talks about the divine one acting so as to prevent the human one from sinning. That sounds like something one self would do for another. But that can't be his meaning, that those are both selves, as he repeatedly denies that there are two selves And he even rejects the suggestion of Christian philosopher Tom Morris that there are two minds in Christ. And his reason for that rejection is, as he says in the book, quote, it is very difficult to see why two self-conscious minds would not constitute human persons. So he wants to say there are two aspects or portions of Christ's mind. He doesn't want to say there are two minds, and he definitely doesn't want to say there are two persons. Speaking of Dr. Thomas Morris, it's clear to me that Dr. Craig has read and been influenced by Morris's work on this topic, specifically his influential 1986 book called The Logic of God Incarnate. There, Morris boldly says that any Christian simply knows that Jesus is a God-man. God has straightforwardly revealed this to us. And so there must not be any property essential to humanity, which is incompatible with full divinity. Thus, he asserts that human nature just is consistent with uncreatedness, eternality, and existing necessarily. And like Craig, he also thinks it's consistent with the God types of knowledge and power. So there just aren't any upper limits to the sort of knowledge and power that a human could have, which is, in my view, very implausible. But the problem with Morris's bold move is that this God-man idea is not straightforwardly part of any divine revelation. It's a doctrine inferred from a small handful of scriptures and often unclear passages. And moreover, mainstream tradition took centuries to really settle on this. It's only really settled in mainstream Christianity that Jesus is divine in the same way that the Father is divine at the Second Ecumenical Council in the year 381. To treat a doctrine of a two-natured Christ as just a given is to elevate conciliar creeds to the level of being a foundational authority for Christians. 
But if Scripture is your standard, then it's surprising how little basis there is in Scripture for this much-vaunted two-natures doctrine. Obviously, Dr. Craig disagrees here. He seems to hold that Scripture obviously implies full deity for Christ. At any rate, I don't know how many of our intuitions about what is possible for a human being Dr. Craig is willing to throw out on the grounds that we know that there is a God-man. And to sum up this segment, I don't see how these extra speculations can help Dr. Craig to address the non-mental contrary pairs of attributes that we're concerned about. But until he does that, it seems impossible for there to be a God-man. And so... When the Trinity's podcast returns, something else that Craig has said about incarnation, something which did not make it into his co-authored book or, as far as I can tell, into any written discussion. Back in 2010, Dr. Craig was in a face-to-face debate with an Islamic apologist about Jesus. This learned Islamic apologist, of course, pushes him on a number of the apparent impossibilities implied by saying that Christ has both the human essence and the divine essence. Here are some portions of Dr. Craig's replies, and this occurs at about one hour and seven minutes into the debate. Now, Mr. Ismail then says that the classical orthodox doctrine of one person with two natures is illogical, paradoxical, incoherent. You can't have it both ways. Give me a model, he says, of the incarnation. Well, those are excellent questions, and in fact, I have done just that in my book, Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview, in which I lay out a model of the Incarnation according to which the second person of the Trinity takes on a human nature in addition to the divine nature he already had, so that he has a full complement of human properties as well as a full complement of divine properties, and is therefore truly both God and man. Hmm. I know Dr. Craig thinks that's what he's done in the book, but as we've heard, he has not done that in the book. He has not given us an account of a divine human Christ, which appears to be contradiction-free. In fact, it seems to be riddled with many contradictions. But now he's going to say something we haven't heard before. Mr. Ismail says, well, can you have a man who is both a fat man and a thin man? Well, if that man has two natures, yes, you can. Let me give an illustration. How many of you have seen the movie Avatar? Uh, saw it. Didn't like it. Blue people. How, how many have seen the movie Avatar? Okay, a few at least. An avatar is another name for incarnation. Ooh. And this movie tells the story of Jake Sully, who is a disabled <laughs> Marine who becomes an avatar among a race of extraterrestrials called the Navi. Now, Jake Sully is physically disabled. 
yet he becomes physically incarnated among them as a Navi. At the same time, however, he doesn't cease to be human. So Jake has both a human nature and a Navi nature. And these two natures have strikingly different properties. If you were to say, can Jake Sully run? The answer would be, well, yes and no. He cannot run as, in, as a human being in his human nature, but certainly in his Navi nature, he can run. Now, if you can make sense of Avatar, then you can make sense of Christ's incarnation. Because in exactly the same way, Christ has both a divine nature and a human nature. And these two natures have different powers. In his human nature, Christ experienced all of the limitations intrinsic to humanity. But in his divine nature, he had supernatural powers. Just as Jake Sully, in his Navi nature, became the savior of the Navi people, so Christ, in his human nature, becomes the savior of humankind. So I think this model makes perfect sense of the Incarnation, and there's nothing logical or incoherent about it. Oh my goodness, so many things to comment on there. For one thing, it's not exactly right to say that the Hindu term avatar means the same thing as Incarnation. In brief, the idea of an avatar is seen most famously in the Vaishnavite part of Hindu tradition, the Vishnu-worshipping wing. Every once in a while, when things get really bad down here, Vishnu descends uh, to be born as a human baby with two parents. Um, then he grows up and you know slays the bad guys, and eventually that thing is killed. But it's okay, because Vishnu has still been existing happily in heaven the whole time. The main difference between Christian theorizing about incarnation and Hindu theorizing about deities having avatars, in that sense, appearing in human form, to me the difference is that the Hindus have never really cared too much about whether the avatar is a genuine or real human person. It's enough for them that the avatar is an apparent human person. It's really God running around doing all these things. There is a body there but they don't claim that the Avatar is both divine and human. By the way, by far the best book I've ever seen about this topic is by an English Christian scholar named Jeffrey Parinder. It's called Avatar and Incarnation, the Divine in Human Form in the World's Religions. So the Avatar scenario from the movie, it's basically a sci-fi scenario of a guy with two bodies. So he has a disabled body that's in this you know, high-tech contraption line there. And then because of the way this technology works, he experiences the world through this, if I remember right, an artificially constructed Navi body. So his own body's just lying in this kind of coffin-like contraption. But then he's actually controlling this body out on this planet and running around doing all the kinds of things that Navi do. Granting that the whole thing is possible, would this be someone who is human and Navi? No, it doesn't seem like it. This would be an apparent member of that Navi species and not a real one. It would be something that could be mistaken for a member of that natural kind. But the natural kind of that guy is human being. Could he be fat and not fat? Well, sure, if he's really got two bodies. If you're a dualist, you're going to say, strictly speaking, it's not the person which is fat, but it's the person's body which is fat or skinny. Yeah, but the problem for a two-natured Christ is a lot harder than that. There aren't two bodies. 
nor are all the pairs of contrary properties bodily properties. And so you can't just divvy up contradictory physical qualities between these two objects. Again, for some two natures theorists, there are five things involved here. There are five realities. There's the composite Christ, there's the divine nature, there's the human nature, then there's the parts of the human nature, a certain type of body, and a rational soul. So the body and soul make up the third thing, the human nature, and the human nature and the divine nature combine to make Christ. Craig thinks really there are only three things. First of all, Christ, he is saying, is the same thing, the same one as the divine nature. It's just that this divine nature, when it's time to incarnate, gains a body. When it does that, it, the divine nature, can serve as the soul of that body. And so by doing that, he comes to have a complete human nature. So there's only three things. There's Christ, that is to say the divine nature. There's a certain type of body. And then there's the human nature that results from Christ taking that body. And the parts of that human nature are Christ, or the divine nature serving as its soul, and the body. So, could you be fat and not fat at the same time? Yes, if you had two bodies, one of which was fat, one of which was not fat. And it is plausible that a body would be the sort of thing which could have a property like being fat or being skinny. But it's so much harder with this alleged divine human Christ. So let's just go through a few of these pairs of contrary essential properties and see where we might put these. Right? Any property has to be had by something. In Craig's Christology, that something will either be Christ, that is to say the divine nature, those are the same thing, or it'll be the body, or it'll be the complete human nature, which is composed of the body and then Christ serving as the rational soul of it. Okay, so what about the possibility of dying, being such that in principle you can die? That seems like it's entailed by humanity. So what is it in Craig's Christology that could be mortal? Well, it can't be Christ or the divine nature because divinity entails essential immortality. So that can't be the thing which could possibly die. Could it be the body? No. Because to die is to lose a life. The kind of life here is a human life. We're talking about the life of a human person. The body is not a human person, and so it can't lose the sort of life that a human person has. A body might be destroyed, but in the sense of dying, where dying is losing its life, we're talking about a human life. Yes, even a human sort of body can't die. A different way to put it is, dying is losing a life. A human life involves consciousness. By hypothesis, this body is not the sort of thing which can be conscious. The subject of consciousness is the soul. And so, no, we can't say it's the body, which is possibly mortal. What about the human nature? Nope, we can't say that's potentially mortal either, because the one self in the human nature, according to Craig, is the divine nature, and that's immortal. The one self of the human nature is the divine nature. It's essentially immortal. So no, we can't say that the human nature potentially dies. After all, divinity includes aseity, and divine life can't depend in any way on the existence of any physical object whatever. What if you destroyed the body? Well, that wouldn't make this divine nature that's serving as its soul die. 
So there is nowhere to put the potential for mortality. It doesn't fit into the picture. What about the New Testament Christ, the one who is explicitly said to be a man and who dies for our sins? There doesn't seem to be a room for him in this theory, which is a huge problem for it. What about the other property in the pair, being essentially immortal? Well, that would clearly be had by the divine nature, also called Christ. It's alive and can't possibly die. That's what it is to be essentially immortal. What about being limited in power? What could properly be the owner of that attribute? Well, not the divine nature, because it has the divine kind of power. It's essentially omnipotent. Couldn't be the body, because we're talking about the power to intentionally act, which requires intelligence and consciousness. And in this theory, the body itself does not have intelligence and consciousness. Now, what about the complete human nature? No, that could not be limited in power because the one self in that complete human nature is the divine nature, which is essentially omnipotent. So there is nowhere to put the attribute having limited power in this Christology. What about omnipotence? Well, there's no problem finding a home for that attribute. Omnipotence would be had by the divine nature. What about being temptable? What is it that's going to be temptable here? Well, not the divine nature, because as divine, it will be untemptable. He doesn't depend on anything, is perfect in knowledge, power, and goodness, perfect in virtue. You're not going to be able to give someone like that a motive to do wrong, but that's what it is to tempt someone. Okay, so if you're looking for what here could be temptable, it's not going to be the divine nature, which is the divine self. What about the body? Again, it's not the sort of thing which could be tempted. It doesn't have motives, so it can't be given a motive to do something wrong. What about the complete human nature, which consists of the body and the divine nature serving, you know, kind of as a substitute for a normal human soul? No, that won't be temptable because the one self that's there, which is the divine nature, is divine and so is immune from temptation. So to be in principle temptable, that's a homeless quality in this theory. There's nowhere to put it. There's nothing in the theory that could possibly have it. In contrast, it's pretty easy to find a home for the quality of being untemptable that would be had by the divine nature. That is to say, by Christ himself. Now, what about the Christ of the New Testament, who clearly is temptable? There's no place for that guy in this theory. So, there's a kind of pattern here. There are a number of attributes which, as best I can tell, Dr. Craig and I and many other philosophers and theologians would agree are essential to anyone who is fully divine. And the subject of those properties would be Christ, a.k.a. the divine nature. On the other hand, there are a number of qualities which we seem to assume are essential to being a human, and there's nowhere to put them in the theory. Now, for some of the human qualities, I think we can find a place for them in the theory. Dependency, contingency, and being time-bound. The human nature that he's imagining would, I think, count as dependent, because it only comes into existence when the body is brought into a union with the divine nature. So it would be dependent, 
contingent and time bound that human nature which consists of a, the right sort of body and then the divine nature which is the eternal divine son is serving as its soul again i think that sort of human nature will be limited in space it won't be everywhere and i think it will actually be created it'll have an uncreated part the divine nature but the whole thing i think will count as created because the body is also supposed to be essential to it and the body is a created thing and if the whole has an essential part which is created then the whole will count as created even though it has an uncreated part i think but it seems to me that there are 10 essential human qualities which are as i said before homeless on this theory what is it that could be limited in power not the divine nature but also not the body and not the human nature what is it that could be limited in knowledge obviously not the divine nature but also obviously not the body and not the human nature what is it which is able to believe something false not the divine nature not the body not the human nature what is it which is capable of being less than fully virtuous not the divine nature but not the body it's not capable of being virtuous to any degree nor the human nature because again the one person in the human nature is the divine person how about being temptable in principle not the divine nature not the body not the human nature how about being peccable in other words being in principle able to sin again not the divine nature not the body not the human nature how about being capable of improvement in character not the divine nature not the body not the human nature how about being mortal being such that one can be subject to death not the divine nature not the body not the human nature how about being subject to god's providence not the divine nature surely but then not the body and not the human nature either and finally how about being under god's authority which is entailed by being essentially created that can't be a quality of god but it can be a quality of the body being under authority here is the kind of relation that only a person can bear to god but not the human nature either because the one person in the human nature is the divine person and as divine it won't be under any authority but will be necessarily top level so it looks like in craig's christology there is no place for that is to say there is no owner or bearer for at least 10 properties which are essential to being human which are implied by the essence humanity of course he means to be presenting us with a fully and truly human christ but because of those 10 homeless human properties his christ seems to be less than fully human so we need to add one more contradiction to the list which is this being fully human that is having all of the essential human attributes and not that is lacking at least one of the essential human attributes He means to be presenting us with a fully human Christ, but it looks like he doesn't do that. Let me see now if I can quickly sum up the objections of these two episodes. First of all, last time I pointed out that it's all too convenient that Dr. Craig chose to focus on just six pairs of seeming incompatibilities between divinity and humanity. As we heard last time, there would seem to be at least 15 such pairs. 
and many of them are not clearly addressed by his neo-Apollinarian theory. Even the pair of limited knowledge versus perfect knowledge doesn't seem to be well addressed by what he says. Also, Dr. Craig assumes with Catholic tradition that being a real human is a matter simply of one's components and present qualities, making one's origin irrelevant. But that doesn't seem right, as I illustrated by a couple of thought experiments. And we should remember that not only is the New Testament Jesus supposed to be a real human, but he's also supposed to be a real son of Mary and a real descendant of King David. And these claims seem to require that Jesus exists in part because of some previous humans. For more on this, see Trinity's podcast episode 235, The Case Against Preexistence. A third objection I gave towards the start of this episode is that on Dr. Craig's account, Jesus lied about not knowing the day or hour of his future return. And that seems like a significant cost of the account. I also argued that, on Craig's account, Jesus will lack the kind of knowledge enjoyed by the one perfect God. And so this Jesus will not, as advertised, be fully divine. Further, his theory contradicts the clear New Testament teaching that Jesus is a man, which is to say, a human person. In contrast, Dr. Craig sides with the Catholic mainstream, holding that Jesus is, in a unique sense, human, but is not a human person. Oddly enough, Dr. Craig's theory here clashes with the ecumenical creeds by denying that the Divine Son became human at the time of his incarnation. As we heard, according to Dr. Craig, the second person of the Trinity has always been human and so never became human. Perhaps most importantly, I objected that the Christ of Dr. Craig's theory lacks something like ten essential human attributes, and so this Christ will not be fully or truly human. The theory, then, falls prey to the pitfall of docetism, teaching in fact that Christ is only apparently human. He'll have some of the essential qualities of humanity, but he'll lack many others. But of course, Dr. Craig does assert that his Christ is fully human, and so we have yet another contradiction in the account, a sixteenth one, that Jesus is and isn't fully and truly human. To sum up, Dr. William Lane Craig clearly has no intention of presenting the world with a self-contradictory way to understand Christ. However, that is what he, despite himself, has managed to do. He does not succeed in giving the thinking Christian somewhere to rest his or her mind about Christ. At the end of the day, when we go back to the inconsistent triad we discussed before, these three claims, such that any two of them seems to imply that the remaining one is false, again, these are Jesus is divine, anything which is divine is not also human, and anything which is human is not also divine, that's the second claim, and third, Jesus is human. Just one of these parent contradictions, being a real contradiction, implies that the second claim is true. 
that anything which is divine is not also human, and anything which is human is not also divine. And yet, clearly, the Jesus of the New Testament is supposed to be a real man. We should wonder, then, if it really somehow manages to imply that Jesus is divine. Certainly, the New Testament doesn't come anywhere close to saying that Jesus has all 15 of those divine attributes we've discussed. Does it even imply that Jesus is self-existent, necessary, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, unable to believe a falsehood, present everywhere, uncreated, perfectly morally good, untemptable, impeccable, such that he can't possibly improve in character, essentially immortal, provident over any other things there are, and that he has authority over any other things there are. Does it really teach all that? Because if it doesn't, the obvious way forward here is to say that maybe Jesus is divine in some sense of the word divine, but not in the sense we mean it here. It just does seem true for a number of reasons that divinity rules out humanity and vice versa. Given that, and that the Jesus of the New Testament is clearly and indisputably supposed to be a real human, then we should question whether or not it teaches that Jesus is divine in the way that the one God is divine. Now, the arguments there are complex. It has to do with the interpretation of 27 ancient books. I think, though, that there is a way forward. I've sketched it out in a recent Trinity's podcast called Podcast 334, Who Do You Say I Am? I commend those arguments to you. It's a way to try to keep in perspective the whole of the New Testament outlook about God and the Son of God, the man Jesus Christ. Those arguments are an antidote to what I call the canon within the canon, which is the traditional Catholic practice of focusing on a small handful of alleged deity of Christ proof texts while ignoring the broader view and numerous clear texts that don't seem to fit in to the Catholic story. There is a way to come to a reasonable faith about the Lord Jesus Christ and His and our God. This week's thinking music has been the track Blue Notes by Airtone. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. love the trinity's podcast please share this episode on social media like twitter or facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the itunes store for your country you can also support the trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode if you're interested in that please visit patreon.com trinities finally let us know what you think Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement.
for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.